This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. What happens when someone reaches out to suggest a podcast topic? We put together a dynamic group of Master Brewers members to talk about that topic. We're running at a max of four bar on the back pressure. And although I'm sure it's different machine to machine, is there any kind of guideline as to what is too high in terms of back pressure? This week on the show, Becky Rudolph has great questions about centrifuge operation. So we mobilized a small army of industry peers to provide great answers. My name is Becky Rudolph. I am a quality assurance and seller manager with Great North Ale Works in Manchester, New Hampshire. My name is Lawrence Wolfskit. I'm with Bell's Brewery. I've been here for about 11 years and uh, working on a fuge for most of those. I'm Morgan Harry, uh, seller manager at Odell Brewing, Fort Collins, Colorado. Steve Larley at the Old Hickory Brewery. Brewmaster, do everything, basically. <laughs> We're a small company. Hi, I'm Andrew Conlin. I'm the director of brewing operations here at Heretic Brewing Company in Fairfield, California, and happy to be here. Hi, I'm Chris Clausen. I'm a centrifuge engineer and the craft beverage industry manager at Truce and Separation Technologies. Hi, I'm Marco Garcia. I'm the technical brewer here at New Blair's Brewing Company in Wisconsin. Hi, my name is Zach Kelly. I'm with uh, Russian River Brewing Company. I'm the lead production brewer at our new Windsor facility. Let's talk about best practice for solids removal pre-centrifuge. I'm sure this depends on yeast selection as well as other ingredients and process, but how many days of cold maturation with cone drops do you require in your process? Once we've turned down to 32, we usually let the tank sit for two days and we dump solids both of those days. So you've got to turn down to 32, dump day, dump day, and then we fuge on that uh, following day. And how's that working out for you? 
it seems to be okay, although our yields are still not quite as good as I'd like them to be. So I'm wondering if another day would help or, or any change in our process would, uh, would benefit us. So hopefully I can get some answers on that today. Okay. Um, Zach, what are you guys doing? Optimally, we're going for about two to five days. Um, we don't remove any solids until the actual morning of. Um, our tanks now have standpipes in them, so we'll remove from the true bottom and then the standpipe down the beer. Okay. And uh, Morgan, what's Odell's doing? You know, pretty style dependent, um, but typically at least three to five days again. Um, doing some good drains uh, before we're fusing, obviously. Uh, dropping out most of the, the hops, uh, getting to yeast and harvest yeast if needed, and, and blend in as much of that during the actual centrifuge run as possible. All right, Stephen, how about you guys? Uh, yes, yeah, really dependent on, on the style of beer, of course. Uh, over half our production is lager, so uh, it's just for you know, four or five weeks. Um, we typically don't uh, dump the solids until the day of uh, centrifuging. If it's a beer that's um, that's uh, going to be dry hopped, we'll, we'll dump yeast and then dry hop, and then we'll dump that before we go to the centrifuge. Andrew? So it's, yeah, like everybody is saying, based on style, but it's also just based on the production schedule. So we, we centrifuge probably about five beers a week. So we'll we'll crash on a Monday, and then usually about four to five days in, we'll centrifuge over. We've tested different amounts of days, and we've found that our yields change um, depending on how many days we allow it to sit. So we've tried to do a little bit earlier, and we've found that our yields drop quite significantly. So we find, you know, the longer you allow it to, to sit, the better. Okay, let's hear about how you, uh, how you go about blending in the tank bottoms during a run. What's the typical procedure for that? This is something that we've been discussing a lot recently. Um, we'll get the fuge going, and then we'll kind of start to open that bottom valve and blend in. And we'll kind of adjust it throughout the run, depending on how the machine is reacting and our NTUs. And I don't know if that's the correct process or not, but that's what we're doing at this point. Uh, I think sometimes we overreact a little bit. Uh, and don't let uh, the fuge itself take care of the solids. So I'm wondering if um, we should just be kind of cracking that valve and, and letting it go or if we should be monitoring it uh, throughout the process. We uh, actually have made a little rig that basically attaches to both arms at the same time. So both the racking arm and the uh, true bottom. So after dumping everything off the very beginning, um, generally everything still settles out a little bit during the during the run. So we will come directly off of this uh, standpipe until we got a good run going. Our DOs look good. Um, everything's flowing really smoothly. And then we will also, like you were saying, just crack back that uh, bottom valve just a tiny bit, um, just to, just so you see a little bit of movement come in there. And if you see any negative effects on your discharges or anything like that, you can kind of troubleshoot back and forth. Centrifuges like stability, so if you're going to, when you start mixing in the tank bottoms, uh, if you're uh, 
you know you're going to get an increase in in solids. You can slow the flow rate down on the centrifuge to compensate for that. That way you have a more stable centrifuge discharge turbidity, uh, and, and you give the centrifuge a little more time on the, the more turbid beer out of the bottom uh, to be able to, to meet the spec that you're looking for. We're already running at a pretty, what I think is a pretty slow flow rate. We're running at about 10 gallons a minute, and that's for our, our heavily dry hopped beers. Um, so I feel like that's already pretty slow. Can we slow it down even further, or is that kind of getting into a, a range that's too slow? No, I mean, you can, you can slow down as far as you need to to get the results that you're, you're looking for on the outlet. Uh, and as you're, as you're running, your inlet will become less turbid, so you can increase that. So generally, when uh, when at the start of the run, the flow rate will be, you know, say, uh, 10 GPM, and then as the run clears the the cone or or the uh, bottom of the racking arm. Um, you can increase that flow rate so that at the end of the run, you could be running uh, 50 GPM. Yeah. Uh, just to add to that, uh, you know, you're going to have a minimum speed that you can run on your centrifuge. So one of the things is as you decrease the speed on your centrifuge, you're going to have to increase the back pressure on the discharge in order to kind of keep the machine packed and avoid any shearing um, or cavitation inside the bowl. So uh, one thing that uh, you want to watch out for as you increase that back pressure is making sure that beer is not coming off the top of the bowl because you're overfilling it. Uh, so we have done a few experiments early on with doing a double draw system where we pull from the tank cone and from a, an upper port in the tank. But typically, we're just uh, sending everything through the cone nowadays. Our, our centrifuge is able to automatically adjust flow rate to inlet turbidity. Uh, which is very nice in our larger system. We have a very manual slower flow rate, but it'll drop down to 25 GPM when we're running um, really thick stuff, and then when we're running clear, it'll go up to 75. All right, great. Looks like Morgan has something to say. Yeah, so uh, in the past, we would typically use like a kind of a, a Y setup um, where we're mainly pulling off the racking arm or a standpipe and then blending in the cone. Um, but we actually stumbled upon these uh, flexible impeller pumps at CBC a few years ago. Um, and there's these really small, uh, virtually no shear. Um, they're EPDM uh, impeller driven pumps. It's like a one square foot footprint on the ground. Um, but you're able to run it at like one hertz to, to, you know, a little, little bit above that, but just very slowly dose in. So you get a very stable in that turbidity. Um, and again, it is very important if you are able to adjust flow rate um, on your inlet turbidity to handle uh, any slugs, any little hiccups um, that is going to save you on the on the outlet. Um, and again, just just really slow, stable, consistent blending on the inlet, uh, as little fluctuation as possible, keeping everything consistent, like people have been saying. How about best practice for running multiple brands on the same day? In other words, how do you manage that transition from one brand to the next? Is that just a, a beer flush, a water flush, a full CIP? How do, how do people manage that transition? We're kind of running 24 hours, starting up Sunday, running the one or two centrifuges through um, Thursday or Friday sometimes. 
Um, so we are just doing like a good thorough rinse, um, getting a bunch of ejections done um, just to flush out the bowl, flush out, flush out the discharge side. Um, just a nice cold rinse and, and no CIP. We go right into right into hot kill and, and purge. Um, we do a big oh. uh, de water flush in between um, in between our runs and then just clear out the bowl. Yeah, uh, currently uh, at New Glarus, what we're doing is we do a deaerated water push as well. Uh, three large shots to clear out the bowl. And what we'll do is we'll actually look at the drain because the large shots are going to go down the drain and make sure that that comes out clear. And then we're able to move to the next brand. Uh, previously, when I was at Miller, in addition to doing that, they, we could also do uh, flying changes. So brand to brand changes by knowing the push out amount. Yeah, I was going to ask if anybody was going beer to beer. Anybody else doing that? Yeah, John, this is Lawrence. Uh, we have done a few different ways. We've gone beer to beer with certain brands. It kind of depends on the color, flavor profile of the beer um, and, and yeast strains. So we've done deered water pushes. We've gone straight beer to beer with brands, and we chase out with sensory through a black and bleed. Um, but we have a lot larger volumes that we work with, so... Um, it's small dilution factors in there, uh, but we also have uh, done uh, deer to water pushes, like everyone else has said, and, uh, as well as just a full-on uh, uh, CIP and resanitation after as well. Um, I schedule based on yeast and um, and also just based on you know the amount of hours in the day. We definitely don't do 24 hours, um, but we'll do a full CIP between different brands and then a resani. Okay, let's hear about process loss, and perhaps for anybody whose brewery is somewhat new to centrifuging, any data they might have on yield increases. I don't necessarily have any data on yield increases. Uh, Previously, we did not do such a great job of tracking our uh, transfer volumes, so that certainly doesn't help me in assessing how we're doing with the fuge. Um, But I can tell you that for our highly hopped beers, we're yielding about 80%. um, And for the one uh, non-dry hopped beer that we do, it's about 94%. And I don't know if that's uh, a decent yield uh, compared to what others are getting or if these are uh, numbers that could be improved somehow. Uh, Yeah, we're seeing for dry hopped beer about... 8%, 8%, and then for non-dry hop beer, about 1.7% in loss. Um, and just, uh, you know, we were talking about cone drops. We actually don't run the cone, the dry hop cone. Why don't you run the cone? Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's a whole slew of reasons. I mean, those that have, uh, you know, when you pump out your uh, hops, like hops just make a mess. Like they'll get into the buffer tank that's feeding the centrifuge, um, makes it really hard to run. Uh, we'd have to put it in recirc over and over again. And quite frankly, you know, the long and the short of it is um, if you take the hops in the cone, you spin it down and you taste it like the supernatant, it's just not that good. At our big center feature, we typically see losses between uh, 1.5% up to 10% to some based on brewed volume versus what came out of the centrifuge. Uh, on our smaller fuge in our pilot brewery um, uh, for 13 barrel tanks, we see anywhere from 11% to um, 26%. Uh, it all depends on the beer. We do centrifuge a uh, handful of our beers warm uh, as well, so I'm sure that has a factor to do with it, but um, that's typically what we see for our losses. 
So I just, this is Marco. I just wanted to add to that. So for losses, like uh, we do talk about flow rate quite a bit, but I would say if you're looking at your yields, the most important thing that you can do as a brewer is understand how big the solid holding space is for your machine. So if you know if it's, you know, if it's, you know, five gallons or, you know, 30 liters, whatever that number is, and your manufacturer can tell you what that is, or your vendor can tell you what the holding capacity of your machine is, take that number, multiply it by about 85%, and make sure that your discharges are not bigger than that. Or I guess another way of saying is that know what your solid capacity is and make sure that your discharges are the correct size. Does that sound about right, Chris Clausen? Yeah, absolutely. Knowing what that what that volume is, uh, you, you can you can dial in your discharge. And uh, with if you do a, a spin down on a benchtop uh, centrifuge, uh, thirty six hundred RPM for two minutes, and you can you'll get your volume by volume of solids. You can also take that and calculate out. If you don't have automation, you can calculate how long it's going to take to fill that 80 to 85% of the solids chamber and shoot on that time based on what you're, you're, based on the feed that you're seeing. To do that, though, you have to have a pretty consistent inlet and adjust that time based on how much solids you see coming into the machine uh, as best guess. That's where some automation with turbidity meters and and programming come in to take the human factor of that out. If you can uh, optimize your run to increase the time between shoots, uh, you'll have better efficiency. After a shoot, the hydrodynamics in the bowl get disrupted, and it takes a little while for them to settle back out. So if you can increase the time between shoots without uh, without building up too much solids in the bowl, uh, you'll run more efficiently. Let's hear about your typical DO pickup during a run. Uh, Marco, what's yours? Maybe one on a shot. We're basically essentially at zero. Okay. Andrew, how about you? Yeah, so we'll test the tank before we centrifuge just to make sure that it's at the proper DO, which is essentially zero PPB. And then it depends on the style, but we tend to, like Marco was saying, we tend to keep our centrifuge below about two to five PPB. Steven? Yeah, we're typically between one and three PPB on a pickup. Uh, really, I think it for us, it depends on the length of the run, how much hose we have to move from one side of the plant to the other. Morgan. Yeah, so we're measuring the inlet and outlet on the centrifuge on every run, uh, and we're typically seeing uh, mid to high teens on the inlet and, and low low 20s on the outlet. Um, virtually no pickup, essentially. Zach. We are also seeing very low um, pickup, if anywhere, generally in the low single digits, um, probably a little bit due to uh, our carbonation in line afterwards that does any additional kind of polishing for us. All right. Lawrence. Uh, on our larger centrifuge, we will typically see somewhere in the same thing, around low teens to uh, mid-20s. Um, we do have an integrated 
uh, alarm light. So anything over 50, if we're having some issues, it'll send a, a strobe light going off outside of our room. Um, on our pilot brewery, um, that we're still dialing in. We're looking to find the right flash to identify the best uh, best way to identify that. But we've seen uh, below 50 numbers and as high as 100. So um, it's just very small runs that happen very, very quickly. So it's been tough for us to uh, uh, figure that out just yet and getting the right meter to, to measure that. But we're still still learning on that one for sure. At a higher level, let's hear briefly about sort of the relationship of beer flow rate to beer clarity um, slash NTUs. My my understanding, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, certainly is a slower uh, GPM will lead to better NTUs, um, but I, I I don't know that for sure. That's sort of just uh, what we've seen. Um, the other question I have is how are people controlling their flow rates because we only use the back pressure to do that but i uh sort of got some uh a sense that that there's a different way to do it that maybe we are unaware of so as far as the uh flow rates you know as chris had pointed out that you know you have a certain holding capacity in there so if you're going slower you're just allowing more time for the beer in the machine to settle out so yes if you run slower typically you will have uh, a better clarity on the discharge side that being said i have seen cases sometimes where running faster is better i can't tell you why uh, other than the universe has a sense of a, a sense of humor um as far as the flow rate the yes you should have two valves on your machine that control flow you have one on the discharge and one on the inlet and those are both flow control valves now any brewer worth their salt knows that if you have a pump you're going to put your flow controller on the discharge and the centrifuge is essentially a pump where the beer moves but the pump is stationary so it's kind of crazy when you look at it your flow control valve is actually on your inlet and that's what I was saying earlier, that if you go too slowly, it's kind of like putting your finger on the hose and it will spray right out. So you, if you close your flow control valve on the inlet of the machine, you need to proportionally increase your back pressure in order to keep your machine packed. Likewise, the faster you go, you need less back pressure to keep that system packed. Yeah, I think there's a there's one thing we've kind of like skimmed on. Um, just the overall bowl speed of the centrifuge itself um, plays a lot into this, and it can be kind of adjusted depending on your brand um, in conjunction with flow rates and discharge timings and these other things. Um, but just the bowl speed, dialing that into the particle size that you're actually trying to strip out, um, whether that be yeast hops, um, just just playing with that a little more can 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 add a lot. Um, but yeah, like I said, the flow rate is is a, is a big part of it. But kind of having a pump on your inlet, providing that stable flow rate, and and like like we were saying, um, the the back pressure can can play a lot into it. If if you're going too low and you're having to put a lot of back pressure, you can end up stripping and and causing a lot of breakout in your product. Um, but yeah, I think I think starting with bowl speed and and moving from there is is pretty key. Do you want to give some general uh, general numbers out there for for bowl speed for various applications? Um, yeah, I think somewhere around like forty five hundred is a good starting point generally. Um, 
and going plus or minus from there will get you where you want to go. I mean, more like, can you give an example of like um, the a practical application where you want to run it slower and how, how, how slow would you go? Right. Um, so, I mean, clear, clear brands like 90 shilling, we can we can run the bowl speed a little quicker just to pull out particles quick, um, run the beer through at a higher flow rate overall. Um, but with the development, a lot of these these hazy beers we're seeing these days, we still want to run them through the centrifuge, strip out a lot of the hot particulate, um, but maybe not some of the enzymes and proteins that are that are um, helping our, our haze. Um, so lowering the bowl speed in the in the case of uh, like the hazy stuff, even even some like wheat beers where you want to maintain your haze um, can can help a lot. And you'll see just kind of as a rule of thumb, I kind of teach our operators that one ejection for every 10 barrels is is pretty safe. Again, like if you're having too many ejections, you're just dumping beer down the drain. Um, that's just kind of a measure of like how long the bowl is staying open during that discharge. Um, so kind of managing all of, all these factors, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to play with. There's a lot of variables. Um, but yeah, kind of kind of ramping up and down from that 4,500 mark is, has proved fruitful for us. All centrifuge separation is bound by Stokes Law, which is a... a physics law. Uh, there are several different variables in it, but when we're talking about the flow rate, uh, it, it goes to a part of that equation that is uh, the force that the beer is seeing. So it'll be different for each make and model centrifuge because the uh, bowl diameters will be different, the solids holding capacity will be different, the disc stacks inside will be different. Um, so it, it'll be dependent on each make and model. Uh, that's why it's really important to, to keep notes on the runs when you're you're learning a, your particular centrifuge on each beer. Um, the overall answer is yes. The slower you, uh, the slower you run the flow rate, the more clear beer you will have because you're going to have the beer is going to have less time in the bowl for those particles to separate. The back pressure is very important also uh, to keep the bowl filled and to keep shear rates down. I would adjust those, and I recommend adjusting flow rate and back pressure first. The higher the back pressure, the more clear beer you'll have. The lower the back pressure, the more turbid beer you'll have. Adjusting those first, and then if you don't see the results that uh, you want, work with your, your manufacturer or your supplier to decide what a safe safe RPM for your centrifuge will be. It's important to talk with a manufacturer or a supplier about what the safe range is because there are vibration harmonics at certain speeds that can do damage to internal parts on the centrifuge. Uh, but if you just have an open communication with with your supplier or, or manufacturer, they can tell you where those are so that you, you make sure that you're getting the results that you want, whether it's a brilliant Pilsner or a, a hazy New England, uh, you you can find the combination that works. But uh, it it is really important to take notes so that you have uh, something to look back on and say, all right, this worked, this didn't. Uh, when when you're first getting a, a recipe, if you will, together for how to run the centrifuge for that particular beer.
these machines are dangerous. I always tell people in trainings, like, they are, uh, you know, for the size of the machine, it's a fully loaded Grand Caravan, family of four, all their luggage spinning at 4,800 RPM. That's a lot of weight. And so be very careful, uh, you know, as was mentioned, never overspeed your bowl work with the vendor and uh, I'm glad Chris mentioned the uh, vibration harmonics because you know you can get the, those machines are designed to be unstable at certain RPM and that's by design so if you ever want to kind of see this in your own brewery and you have trending ability or just watch it watch your vibration monitor on your machine as the machine starts up and you're going to see somewhere from two to three peaks as it comes up and those are those harmonics that Chris was talking about. Coming up. Let's say the machine came to a complete stop and you're trying to bring it back up. The first thing that's probably going to stop you is vibration. If, that so if the solids are packed in there and have dried up. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Brewer Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to... Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to homebrewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. Master Brewer's calendar is still a hot mess due to COVID-19. Definitely check out the calendar of events at MBAA.com for the latest information. Here are some events that remain on the calendar. There's quite a few webinars, including Beer Recovery from Hoppy Tank Bottoms using a decanter centrifuge May 14th. Putting Brewing Water into Perspective with John Palmer, May 16th. Enzymes and Enzyme Application in Brewing, May 19th. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets online May 21st. District New England has a webinar on Kvike Yeast, May 22nd. Looking beyond the pandemic, proactive measures towards business interruptions, May 26th. Creating a safe environment for brewery tours, June 9th. And finally, compliance testing for state-level cannabis markets on June 23rd. The best brewing conference worldwide only happens every four years, and it's happening this August. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. 
The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Back to the show. If our NTUs are running at, let's say, 60, and, you know, we're blending through the cone and they jump up to 120, um, should we leave it alone and let the machine make its adjustments and and take care of that? Or should we be shutting the valve, uh, decreasing the back pressure, and trying to bring those NTUs back to where we want them? Or is it safe to let the machine do that on its own and uh, assume that, you know, it'll all wash out in the end when we've got our full, you know, um, volume of beer in the bright. Um, so I guess that that kind of depends on how automated your centrifuge is. Um, we currently have our old centrifuge, which is now in our funky brewery, and we also have a fairly automated new uh, alpha Laval as well. The alpha Laval will change its own uh discharge and its own like servidity it's inlet speed and outlet speed kind of based on parameters that we set based on what we want our maximum speed to be based on turbidity on the manual uh well more manual older machine we do have to do a little bit of balancing back and forth um we actually use dial valves on that machine to kind of regulate our inlet flow and then we'll use the back pressure to kind of make sure we're not getting any sort of breakout or anything like that but it really does come down to what kind of machine you're running. And I think that if you're running something a bit more, uh, a bit more manually, um, that's going to come down to also your preference. Cause if you're blending in, if you're coming out at that higher NTU and that's not to brand, then obviously you're going to want to make some changes and not necessarily just let the centrifuge uh, figure itself out. And, uh, just to add to that, uh, one more thing, um, a lot of people will run a centrifuge prior to a DE filter so that they can reduce the yeast load to it. If you see a giant spike in the NTUs like that and your filter is not ready to hit or to handle that, uh, that could probably knock you out or cause you to pressure out on your filter. So, again, like Zach said, it's, uh, it depends on what you can handle downstream, whether it be a quality aspect or what your equipment can handle. Okay, we're going to move on and talk about carbonation. Listeners interested in that topic should check out a link in the show notes for an Ask the Brewmasters thread on the same topic. But let's hear about how each of you approach carbonation. Are you doing that in line or as a separate process or what? Um, so our uh, carbonation is uh, post uh it's well after the centrifuge, though to kind of add to it, especially I would imagine a lot of other brewers are seeing that considering how low the DO pickup is coming across the machine, is that we do sometimes see that the pressure of the CO2 on either the hydrohermetic seal or in the space 
or in the hood, excuse me, um, can actually get picked up in the machine. So sometimes you can see as much as about a 0.15 volume by volume CO2 pickup coming across the centrifuge. All right. Um, Andrew, how about you? Yeah, so we've tested doing um, uncarbonated beer through the centrifuge and haven't had luck. We've had a lot of DO pickup. Um, it's something that's kind of on my list of things to test. But for now, we do carbonation before we send the beer through. So maybe people could answer this, but we've had issues with, you know, a beer being lower carbonated, you know, maybe 2.1 or 2.2 and that causing a pickup in DO. Um, and ever since we've dialed in our carbonation method, um, we've had no DO issues on the centrifuge. Anybody want to comment on that specific issue before we keep going down the list? Yeah, that'll be dependent. Uh, I'm assuming you have a hydrohermetic seal. Uh, that'll be dependent on that seal and how much CO2 you're uh, putting into the, the centrifuge uh, hood. Um, if you may, if you're seeing higher, uh, if you're seeing higher DO pickup, it's most likely because there's not enough CO2 in the hood space. Uh, when a centrifuge shoots its solids out, it creates a low pressure moment, uh, which will draw in that uh, hydrohermetic seal water and whatever gas is behind it. So it might be where you're picking that up. Uh, I would agree with that, uh, that we've been able to run uh, probably beer with as low of a carbonation as about 1.6 volumes across the machine and not have DO pickup. Okay, great. Uh, let's keep going down the list. Uh, Steven, what are you guys doing? Are you carbonating in line or before or what? Um, no, we're carbonating once the uh, beer goes into the bright tank, then we'll um, carbonate the beer with just, you know, through a CO2 stone. All right, Morgan. Uh, yeah, we're using inline carbonators on the outlets of our centrifuges. Um, and then if we need to bump up in the bright, we can. Um, typically, we're hitting spec on the outlet into the bright, though. Zach? We are carbonating uh, directly out of the centrifuge. Um, we do use a pretty significant amount of back pressure in the bright uh, tank and head pressure on the fermenter while we're, while we're carbonating. And we generally see uh, spec by the end. And Lawrence. Yeah, we're doing a little bit of both at Bell's. Um, I'm a little bit unfamiliar with our current setup since I moved to our pilot brewery, but uh, I believe we have the capability of uh, drop chiller after the centrifuge if we need it, um, as well as it's a good idea sometimes to have a buffer tank before doing another process after the centrifuge to get a nice steady flow. Um, it could have issues with filtration and other other equipment as well. So, um, But typically for most of our, our large volume brands, we're throwing inline carbonation um, after going through a drop chiller. Becky, what are you guys doing? Uh, we are not uh, inline carbon at all. We're waiting until the bright is full and uh, using like a, a spin carb um, process to carb the beers, which works for us, although we certainly have considered inline and would uh, be interested in anybody's setups or, or you know equipment that they've invested in and they feel is worthwhile. I want to shift gears and talk about, there was an interesting post on the um, Acid Brewmasters uh, community site about um, 
uh, fruit going through your centrifuge. I don't know if anybody had a chance to read that or has their own experiences um, kind of commenting on things like seeds and whatnot. Um, so I'll shut up and see what people have to say about that. Fruit is a great application for centrifuges. Uh, so you'll you'll find when you add fruit, you get kind of the yogurt, and uh, a centrifuge w- can process through that yogurt really efficiently. Fruit compacts really well in the bowl, so your return uh, is is pretty significant in those applications. You do have to be careful of abrasive materials, uh, so things like seeds. Um, can cause some damage. Uh, they can get stuck in the disc stack. So you want to make sure that the uh, the particle size of whatever is going into the centrifuge is smaller than the disc stack spacing that you have on your particular centrifuge. You can help control that by before adding the fruit or puree, running it through a strainer uh, to make sure that whatever is going into the vessel is smaller than the the distax spacing. Uh, the abrasive nature of, of seeds can increase uh, wear and tear on the machine. So keeping up on uh, maintenance is important if you're going to be running fruit that has seeds in it as well. Um, so a game I like to play with our manufacturers sometimes is uh, Will It Fuge? So I'll, I'll reach out to them specifically on certain ingredients. Um, a lot of, uh, not a lot of, but some centrifuges, you can get a uh, wear strip installed in your slots of your bowl uh, to help protect um, the metal. Some of the things can be very abrasive, uh, like seeds, uh, coffee grounds, um Anything slightly hard, uh, straining before centrifuging is also uh, always a really good option. But uh, sometimes without those centrifuge or the wear strips in there, you can you can do some pretty heavy damage if you uh, don't do it right. I mean, it will it, you'll be able to run it for a couple uh, months or years, um, but it'll take its toll and, and do some irreparable damage to your bowl if you're not careful. Let's hear about polish filtration or just how bright you can get with the centrifuge. For people looking for a centrifuge or haven't purchased one yet, if you talk with your supplier or manufacturer, there are centrifuges that uh, can produce a high enough G-force to get down to about a half a micron, uh, remove about down to a half a micron, and that will produce a a brilliant beer. It won't get down to the 0.45 for sanitation, uh, but it, it will get very low. Um, it will also increase the, the life of any filter, polish filter that you put on after it. Okay, cool. Uh, let's talk about next, uh, this uh, topic, if applicable, if any of you guys are doing it, is the hot side um, separators. Um, anybody, anybody doing that in their breweries? Uh, yeah, um, that's the primary reason why we, we purchased the centrifuge. Um, is to uh, spin our kettle, uh, and that's where we see the biggest ROI on the machine. Um, I shouldn't say that's why we bought the centrifuge, why we bought that centrifuge, um, to replace our aged DE filter that was dying, so uh, it's a, it was a twofold. But uh, a typical day is our um, centrifuge runs twice. Um, in the uh, morning, it's, it's running uh, bright beer, um, and while 
the brew house is uh, is brewing, and then in the afternoon when it's time to transfer, we we don't even CIP in between. We just flush it with water and then uh, run the hot side through to fermentation, and then then it's a CIP. Okay, these are not quiet machines. Does anybody want to talk about noise levels? So wear your earplugs when you're around a centrifuge. That's all I can say about it. <laughs> yeah. So ear protection at a brewery is obviously incredibly important. Um, so we've got uh, over-ear protection for the centrifuge and for our canning line and for our mill. So just make sure you have it accessible to all employees so they can easily get it or earplugs as well and have a dispenser so it's very easy to have access to it. Anybody want to talk about the dangers associated with custom work or parts not approved by the OEM? I think, uh, you know, I've seen uh, in my previous uh, position with a different brewer, I have seen a lot of machines tear themselves up. They do not go down uh, quietly, I guess is probably the best way to put it. And that's even using the OEM parts. So, I mean, I think it's just a straight up general rule. Don't use, you know, parts that are not from the OEM, especially, you know, because you could also avoid your warranty. If you have the vendor coming in and doing the maintenance work for you, you need to let them use their parts so that if something goes wrong, you can go back to them and say, hey, dude, what's up? But I, I just say that's just dangerous and stupid, to be honest, because that machine is so deadly. Yeah, in a in a worst case scenario, in, in a worst case scenario, the bowl becomes unbalanced, and that can happen either because uh, you know a chunk of solids gets uh, discharges from one side of the bowl of the bowl and not the other. Uh, the other way it can happen is if you're replacing uh, too many of the rotating parts without rebalancing the bowl or parts that are being used uh, weren't intended for that particular bowl. Uh, a lot of manufacturers uh, have, have uh, other vendors that they work through to send out uh, with their OEM parts, uh, but it is, it is absolutely best practice to use OEM parts for that uh, for the particular machine that you're using. Even if you have two of the same centrifuges in the plant, keeping the bowl parts for each of those machines uh, in the correct bowl is very important. Each bowl will have a serial number and a lot of the rotating, the major rotating parts will have that same serial number on it. And it's important to keep, uh, keep the parts where they're intended. Yeah. So, fully agree. I will say if there is somebody out there that just really, really, really wants to work on their uh, centrifuge or send it to the mixed machine shop down the road, the only piece I've successfully been able to do without the OEM support would be the motor. Uh, so some, you know, after a lot of use, obviously, if you need that motor rewound, that can go to a machine shop that's local. But anything that's rotating, stick with the OEM. Let's talk about CO2 concentrations and you know safety in regards to that. So some people I know put these things in a in a small room. Um, you know, does anybody want to comment on on that type of situation? Um, we actually enclose both of our centrifuges in a in a room and have 
ventilation and its own drain um, and everything enclosed in that. Um, it helps keep our micro samples kind of isolated so everything stays as clean as possible, um, keeps the noise level down on the discharge. Um, and we do have monitoring throughout the cellars, um, including the, the centrifuge room, because um, we do have operators entering there to take those samples, obviously. So monitoring, um, keeping a lot of signage for, for safe levels um, and limits uh, is pretty key as well. Okay. Anybody else? I've never had an issue with uh, CO2 concentration. There is a lot of CO2 getting used in that machine. I would suggest that if uh, if you are seeing higher concentrations of CO2, then it's probably the uh, seal on top of your sludge catcher because all that hood CO2 is also going to kind of flow into that. That would be my advice if there, you are seeing a problem with it. So I think it's important to mention that uh, the CO2 use is really dependent on the uh, the make of the centrifuge. If you have a hydrohermetic seal, then you're going to have uh, CO2 and, and deaerated water consumption. If you have a centrifuge that has mechanical seals, is operating in a different way. It's not using CO2 or water to create the seal. Uh, so if you have a machine that has mechanical seals, it shouldn't be an issue. And is it safe to assume everybody's using deaerated water for the hydrohermetic seals? Yes, definitely. Uh, yes, absolutely. You'll find out pretty quick if you're not. Lawrence, I know you want to talk about sort of having a plan for your waste stream and how that's evolved over the years at Bell's. Early on, we uh, we sent all our centrifuge solids to the drain. Um, obviously, at some point, the city uh, it became irresponsible to do so um, as we grew as a brewery. So we started collecting those at our wastewater treatment facility, and that had a, a screen built in uh, where it would catch the solids. Um, Periodically, that would have to be dumped out manually with a forklift into a waste bin uh, that went to a composting facility. Um, our original attempts to do this, to send it to a, a secondary solids tank, uh, did not go so well. Um, what we saw was we didn't have the right size pipe or the right size pump to get it to the distance you wanted to, and we ended up compacting our pipes pretty bad and also blocking up our centrifuge really bad, so we did not have a built-in uh, divert to the drain at that point. Um, so our centrifuge filled up with solids. Um, pretty quickly once it got clogged up. So we, we did a redesign. It took a number of years and, and different attempts, but we finally got the right um, right size pump and, and right size piping to do so. Um, so we, we did a lot of testing with what our, the consistency, viscosity, density of what our solids were coming out. Uh, and we were able to control our solids tank spray water uh, to kind of control some of that viscosity. So when we were running through really thick solids and getting a lot of solids through our discharge, we're increasing our water and maybe not so much when we're running at a very um, low inlet turbidity. So we have our inlet turbidity kind of controlling uh, the amount of water we're putting into our solid stream to get a consistent reading. And we could use that to to spec out the right pump size for that. We uh, we actually discharge into a separate like solids grant that we can manually pump out. Um, we have a couple of solids pumps um, located throughout the brewery uh, to manage our, our liquid waste and solid waste. Uh, we send that out to a, a solids tank outside. It's like a 600 barrel tank. 
Um, that actually gets pumped out by our, our rancher, Lujin. He takes our, sp- takes our spank grain, uh, takes all the, the solids out. And again, um, everything that we rinse out of the tanks after we centrifuge them, all the dischargers get pumped out to that. Um, so we, we don't actually put any of that. Uh, we try to put as little organic through our water treatment as possible to minimize our chemical use um, and any just effluent to the city. Um, we want to mitigate any kind of solids going down the drain. So we try and capture all that and pump it out to, to Lugene. Okay, awesome. Uh, Lawrence brought this one up too, which I thought was pretty good, and I bet it's something a lot of people don't think about before they start one up, as he said that power outages can be bad. Um, if your bowl is full of solids and comes to a complete stop without a discharge, you got a problem. Yeah, uh, that does happen depending on the length of time that you're down during a power outage or any other failure of the machine. Um, some machines have, uh, I always call it a fly catcher, where it catches it on the fly as it's spinning down and starts it back up. Not all machines have that. Uh, what you really want to be cognizant about is, let's say the machine came to a complete stop and you're trying to bring it back up. The first thing that's probably going to stop you is vibration. If that if the solids are packed in there and have dried up, and most machines will not even let you get get up to full speed if you have a high vibration on startup, and at that point, uh, I would say that the only recourse is to take the bowl out and clean it by hand. Let's hear about everybody's favorite topic: preventative maintenance. Um, so, preventative maintenance, obviously, on on all equipment, is incredibly important. I think it's uh maybe a, a standard that's in the beer industry that we kind of wait until things fall apart before we work on them. So I would say with all equipment, make sure you go through the manual and figure out what can be done preventatively. With the centrifuge, um, we found it was best to bring out the manufacturer and do a full um, preventative maintenance, both the minor and the major um, maintenance and it helped us so we could actually take pictures and create a really nice SOP for doing that, um, the maintenance. And then I know it is a lot of money. So these smaller breweries, it can be tough on their, uh, their pocket. So I would say if you do want to save some money, at least spend the money on the first maintenance and just take really good notes. And, you know, we just take it apart. Um, an issue we are having is the more hazy beers we deal with, the more stress it's putting on not just our brew system, but also the centrifuge itself. So you may have to do it more frequently. I would say just open up your centrifuge occasionally and look at it and determine how often you're going to need to do those maintenances and um, you know just act accordingly. I think that's good. And uh I got a little bit of advice, uh, whether or not you're doing your uh, machine yourself or if you're bringing a manufacturer in to uh, do the maintenance work, it sounds really silly, but I, you, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people digging through trash cans looking for a gasket. Count and make sure you have every single gasket in your rebuild kit. And those of you that have not done that before and been caught with it probably know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a small piece of advice, and it sounds kind of silly, but I would strongly suggest make sure you got everything before you even take the machine apart. That's great. That's a kind of perfect practical advice people need to hear. So that's perfect. Thank you. With plan maintenance, I also think it's important to, to mention that uh, whether you're doing it yourself or, or hiring someone to do it, uh, 
make sure that you're not using you're, that you're using the right tools. So don't use a screwdriver to take out a nylon uh, gasket. Uh, use a material that's softer than the metal that you're going up against. Because uh, if if you create scratches and dings, things like this, they add up and decrease the efficiency of the machine. Never use a Scotch Brite or an abrasive pad on the distack or any of the bowl in, internals. If you take the finish off of the distack, it'll it'll start catching particles and it'll get dirty much faster and wear much faster. So you want to use uh, materials that that won't damage the bowl internals. Um, just to add on the point about, um, you know, not creating any scratches or anything like that, you know, just a quick hit is always have enough space laid out to do your job. Nice, large, clean space, you know, and that also for like not scratching anything that goes to like where you're going to place your parts, you know, just be uh, super conscious of making sure that even the surfaces you're putting these things on are softer if you have to use, you know, a flat or something like that, and that it's totally clean, free of dust and everything, too. Just those little details add up pretty quick. Okay. Um, Becky, do you have additional questions that we didn't get to? Because you, you might be the newest centrifuge operator on the call, I believe. Um, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you either had or have come up since this discussion started? Yeah, I, I certainly would agree. I'm the uh, most inexperienced fuge operator, so thank you all for clarifying many of the questions that I've had and taking the time to uh, hang out today. Uh, just, just one clarification um, regarding flow rate. Uh, I hate to beat a dead horse. Um, so we're only controlling the flow rate from the back pressure valve. Uh, it sounded like we should also be controlling inlet flow rate, and I'm wondering how we should go about that. I think we have, and I, I may be wrong, I think it was called a gate valve uh, that is uh, before our flow meter, and I'm guessing that is our inlet, inlet flow rate uh, adjustment, but I'm not certain, so if anybody has any thoughts on that. Yeah, that's probably what it is. A gate valve works really well for proportional uh, flow control. Uh, so I would use your inlet valve to control flow and your back pressure valve to control back pressure. Now, depending on how slow of a flow rate you go, the back pressure will obviously uh, change the flow rate as well. But I would, if, if you're going to make changes to flow rate, uh, try to first change your inlet. And then uh, you're also going to have to change the, the outlet, the, the back pressure valve, because as you change one, the other will change. So once you have a, a recipe, if you will, for a particular beer where you know that you're going to want uh, seven bar on your back pressure, change your flow rate with your inlet valve and then adjust as you're, say, opening that, you're going to want to close your discharge valve so that you keep that seven bar. Does that make sense? You're changing them at the same time to maintain your back pressure, but change your flow. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm sure that's going to take some uh, scary trial and error over the next couple of runs, but uh, hopefully we can make it work without uh, doing any damage. Uh, yeah, no, that, that that's certainly helpful. I appreciate that. If I recall from my limited experience uh, operating a small machine, I mean, that was 
the most stressful part of operating the machine was sort of that that transition of like changing those two things at the same time and keeping that pressure from from jumping around. Yeah, we like I said, that's the we've only been changing flow rate by using back pressure. Now I'm concerned that that may have been uh, detrimental, but I'll 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 play the wait and see game with that, I guess. Um, uh, the only uh, other question I guess I have is we're running at a max of four bar on the back pressure, and although I'm sure it's different machine to machine, is there any kind of guideline as to what is too high in terms of back pressure or or is that just something that uh, you know we'll have to figure out as we go? It depends on the machine uh, and particularly the seals that are in the machine. If you've got uh, hydrochromatic or, or water seals, it's going to be uh, a bit lower, um, and it, it's the max is going to be when the the internal bowl pressure exceeds what the uh, hydro seal is able to stand and you're going to end up losing beer out the top of the, out the top of the bowl. With, if you have mechanical seals, the, uh, the high end pressure is going to be, uh, based on that seal design and you should be able to find that in your manual or talk to your supplier or manufacturer to get that, that upper end generally it's going to be around 10 bar with with mechanical seals and like you said lower with the uh with uh the water seals or the the hydrohermetic seals that was becky rudolph lawrence wiltskut morgan harry stephen lyerly andrew conlin chris clausen marco garcia and zach kelly here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for tons of great links about centrifuge operation. And if you're like Becky and have a great idea for an episode, drop us a line. Have you figured out which brewing conferences you'll be attending this year? There's one that should be your top priority. Like the Olympics, it only happens every four years, and it attracts the best minds in brewing from across the globe. The World Brewing Congress is hosted by ASBC and Master Brewers in collaboration with the Brewery Convention of Japan, the European Brewery Convention, and the UK's Institute of Brewing and Distilling. It's hands down my favorite brewing conference and is packed with the best technical presentations, posters, and networking you will ever experience. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you should be there. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Fermentis. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Seven, 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 seven.